Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Cars, they're everywhere. They've changed our cities. They've changed where we can live and build houses, but they've also given us road trips. There's so much you can say about them. The auto manufacturing sector created massive economic growth in Canada for decades, starting in the 1960s. But in the 1990s, after we signed the North American Free Trade Agreement, a lot of automakers started moving their auto operations out of country, and the auto sector became a flashpoint for arguments about globalization, labor, the cost of doing business, and more. Now we're entering a new phase with the transition to EVs. In the past 18 months, there's been at least $14 billion of money flowing in to revitalize automaking, mainly in Ontario and Quebec, but the federal and provincial governments have spent billions to ensure this happened. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I lined up several guests and did some reporting to try and learn more about this new phase for the auto sector. There's a lot of government money being spent, and it's geared in large part towards limiting climate change, but there are challenges that lie ahead, and the changes tell us something about the way the world is shifting. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. Last week, none other than Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made an appearance in Windsor, Ontario, where the European automaker Stellantis had announced a $3.6 billion investment project to retrofit its plants in Windsor and Brampton, Ontario, so that they could make electric and hybrid vehicles. We've reached a deal with Stellantis to make this Windsor plant and the one in Brampton global leaders on building electric vehicles. Investing in this multi-billion dollar project uh, is because it'll deliver. It'll deliver for workers, it'll deliver for communities, it'll deliver for our economy, and it'll deliver for the environment. Not only are we growing a world-leading auto industry, creating hundreds of jobs and securing thousands more, we're keeping our air clean by building and driving more EVs here at home. Here's the details on that deal. Both Ontario and the federal government are each going to kick in over $500 million so that Stellantis can make EVs in Canada as opposed to somewhere else. That's a lot of money, and I'm dwelling on it because it has bipartisan support. Here's Ontario Premier Doug Ford speaking at the same press conference just after Trudeau spoke. When we took office four short years ago, Ontario once, a vibrant auto industry, was on the ropes. Auto companies were shutting down and leaving our province and taking thousands of jobs with them. Today, that has all changed. We now have secured major investments from all auto companies, again with the support of municipal, federal, and provincial governments. Over the 18 months, Ontario has seen nearly $14 billion invested in new vehicle and battery production, creating tens of thousands of jobs all across Ontario. Here's the state of things. There's five major automakers in Canada, General Motors, Honda, Ford, Stellantis, Toyota, and all five are going to make electric or hydroelectric vehicles in Canada. Now, the federal and provincial government each gave at least $1.3 billion to automakers to make that happen. 
That's 2.6 billion total. And the real number is actually even higher because there's hundreds of millions of dollars that they haven't disclosed to us yet. I spoke to Francois-Philippe Champagne, Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry about this, and he calls it renewing the mandate. A lot of people thought the EV transition could end up killing our auto industry. But now, as of the Stellantis announcement, all the automakers have committed to staying. Definitely. I think we have secured our place in the car of the futures. It's pretty extraordinary. If you look at Stellantis, I think just over the last few months, we've secured something close to $9 billion of investments in Canada. And, and if I look more broadly, over the last few short years, we've been able to extend and expand the mandates of pretty much all the car manufacturers in Canada. And that's why I'm on my way to Germany, because there's no way I'm going to stop there. I think that when I talk to CEOs around the world, the two things that they're looking at, broadly in the industry, not just in the auto sector, uh, the two things which is on top of my view of CEOs is clean energy and critical minerals. And in Canada, I've been blessed with both. And you may have seen, I hosted the North American board of Volkswagen, which for the first time, the COW in the industry, they've met in Canada. And he came with a team of, what, 20, 25 people, uh, the top executive of Volkswagen. My pitch was really, why Canada? And really walk them through what I think makes Canada unique in our value proposition around proximity to resources, uh, proximity to market, proximity to the assembly plant, the deep talent pool we have, uh, particularly in the auto sector, but in industry, but also the ecosystem we've been able to build. And reminding him, Ontario is the second largest jurisdiction when it comes to car manufacturing in North America. And at that time, I would say where supply chain, I think, have moved from being from global to regional and where there's more efficient, there's more uh, emphasis on, on resiliency and efficiency per se. Uh, I think that it leads to Canada's strength. And that message is the one I'm going to be carrying uh, to the manufacturers in Europe. If discussions about the auto sector in the past revolved around globalization and the loss of jobs, the conversation has changed to how we're building a new economy, one that's more resilient to trade disputes, one that's going to help limit climate change, that's going to be more secure as geopolitical tensions erupt. Champagne told me he met with Volkswagen's North American board last week and what they talked about. Uh, there's a lot of challenge on supply chains, on security, on cost of energy, uh, renewable energy. And that's why I think it plays to Canada's competitive advantages. And to bring you a bit in the back room, you know, I think the meeting was scheduled to last. I think we had put like 30, maybe 45, and I think it lasted well beyond an hour and a half, uh, where they were asking a lot of questions. They had their chief procurement officer, I'll remember Inga, who was having a lot of pointed questions. So the feeling I came out of that was really, I was glad we did it uh, because it was kind of, I was making this, the case why Canada should be uh, the EV supplier of choice for them and walking them through the benefits, talking about the fact that we're the only country in the G7, uh, which has a trade agreement with all the other, talking about clean energy, talking about the vision we have from mine to the recycling plant, the fact that we've been able to attract a significant foreign investments and, and try to explain to them the ecosystem that we had envisioned and that we have started to build. And I must say, in my view, when I left, they were pretty impressed. I think they learned things and I think they were very engaged. And that's why next week we're going to have a follow-up meeting with their team in Germany, which has graciously agreed to meet with us. Now, it is one thing to renew the mandate, as Champagne puts it. 
you know, to make sure our auto sector doesn't shrink. But he's always said that he thinks this energy transition can be a springboard for new growth. So for me, once we have renewed the mandates of the uh, automakers in Canada, uh, you know me, Gabe, I'm not going to stop there. So I'm talking to the Germans uh, this summer, going to be in Japan, I'll be in Korea, uh, both on the supply chain, on the battery, on the cam and PCAM and, and car manufacturers uh, to say, you know, I think we can be part of the solution. You, I think it would be in your interest to listen to what we have to offer, because I think we're going to lead in this green industrial transformation uh, generally, but certainly in the auto sector where we have a strong base. After the call, his staff told me he's meeting with VW in Germany, but also Mercedes and BMW to try and convince them to build EV operations here. You don't have to look back too far to see how different this is. And even if you weren't around when NAFTA was signed in the 1990s, you know, you may not remember the debates that trade agreement sparked about the exodus of auto plants to Mexico and lower cost jurisdictions in the U.S. South. But you don't have to go back that far. You can go back to 2018 when General Motors announced it would close its Oshawa plant, which had been there for 100 years and employed thousands of people. That General Motors would prefer to build cars in Mexico and ship them to the United States and Canada than maintain a strong footprint in the United States and Canada. So we are at a crossroads. We are not embellishing the facts. We are not utilizing scare tactics. But the reality is, is GM is on the cusp of complete disinvestment in Canada, and that will lead to a catastrophic end to Canada's most lucrative export industry. That was Jerry Diaz, the former president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in Canada. Full disclosure, the FP, the financial post where I work, recently unionized with Unifor. I've never had any personal dealings with him. But here's some stats about the auto industry. StatsCan says it supports 371,000 jobs directly and another 117,000 indirectly. So the auto sector supports almost half a million jobs. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Champagne and others have always said, auto plants don't just provide jobs, they anchor the economy, and they're an important source of R&D for new tech. Kenneth Gillingham, an economist at Yale University who studies energy and transportation in the environment, spoke to me about the role in the economy that an auto sector can play. Employment in the auto sector is very substantial, and the additional indirect jobs associated with the auto sector uh, make the auto sector one of the more important employers in critical auto manufacturing states and provinces. What this means is that it plays a critical role in the economy of those areas that is hard to replace with anything else. (laughs) I do think that sometimes people overstate the value of the auto sector 
and the auto sector is very good at using that to get lots of tax credits. But I, I also understand the value of the auto sector in providing the foundation of the economy in certain areas. I also wanted to know about the auto sector's less tangible benefits. Like I have heard that because it's advanced manufacturing, it employs engineers working together on complex problems and can lead to innovation in unrelated areas. I think that's true, but I haven't seen studies. I, I think that could be oversold too. It is advanced manufacturing, and particularly when you're getting into some of the software and electronics involved in electric vehicles, it, that's definitely advanced manufacturing. But putting a car together is not advanced manufacturing. <laughs> putting a basic car together, pretty standard manufacturing. Now, there are a lot of pieces to cars. Cars are complex objects, so not a trivial thing to do, but it's not uh, incredibly high-tech manufacturing. And, and I do agree, though, that electric vehicles are more likely to, to be advanced manufacturing. Well, maybe the most important question in all this is what the environmental impacts of electric vehicles are. They're often referred to as zero emission vehicles, but they're not, not, not totally, at least, not yet. Just stepping back, one of the things that's interesting about this story is that one of the critiques of EVs is, oh, you know, they're, they use so much energy in producing the batteries and use so much energy in producing the cars that they really don't don't help much. And that's just not quite true. And and yet it's it's an argument that still seems to be out there all the time. And often for every every argument that's a misdirection, there's a nugget of truth to it. And the nugget of truth is that currently the embodied energy, not just in terms of percentage terms, but in absolute terms, the embodied emissions in an EV are higher. But that once you account for the fuel, it, it completely overwhelms it. To reiterate what Gillingham just said is that when you build an electric vehicle, it currently releases more emissions than when you build a standard gasoline-powered car. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's smaller scale, it's newness, some of the metals that are used in an EV produce more emissions. But as the EV supply chain gets bigger, its emissions are expected to decline. And importantly, this doesn't mean that EVs are worse for the environment. Because you have to look at the overall emissions, and most of the emissions come from the fuel that's burned over the lifetime of a vehicle. Obviously, an electric vehicle doesn't burn gas, they don't, they don't burn anything, but you do have to plug them in. And so the emissions profile of an EV depends heavily on where the electricity is coming from. And when you're thinking about electric vehicles, it depends on the carbon intensity of the electricity used to charge the electric vehicle relative to gasoline. So uh, that's the, the kind of core question there. And that's a, a, an interesting one that has been changing rapidly as coal plants have been closing, but it also is one that varies depending on where you are uh, in the world. <laughs> if you're powering electricity primarily with hydro, Hydro-Quebec, for example, I'm thinking about, that's going to be quite different than if you're powering it in North Dakota with coal. So the carbon intensity plant does vary quite a bit. So there are still coal plants in Canada. And I wanted to know how an EV that's plugged into a coal-powered grid compares to a car that runs on gas. That's a really great question. The best way to think about it is the challenge of reaching a net zero economy if you don't find a way to reduce the carbon emissions coming from transportation. 
you can't find a way to decarbonize transportation, you're really pretty stuck. It's really quite difficult to dramatically reduce emissions and bring the overall economy to a very low carbon economy and much cleaner economy. And so from a long run perspective, electric vehicles are very promising in providing a very real pathway that would allow us to have effectively minimal carbon emissions from transportation. How would you do that? You would need to also decarbonize electricity. But there are many pathways to decarbonize electricity. Maybe in this way, I started to think about EVs almost as a philosophical shift. As the scale of EVs increases, the embedded emissions in them will decline. And as the EV adoption grows, it'll be easier to knock out those remaining fossil fuel plants and replace them with something that produces lower emissions. He noted one other important difference about this transition, and that's that the most valuable subcomponent in the vehicle is changing from the engine to the battery. Today, probably every automaker controls and makes its own engine. But with the battery, a lot of automakers are looking for partners to help them figure out how to produce this technology. That is actually a really important point when thinking about this transition. The heart of an electric vehicle really is the battery. And if, if an electric vehicle company can dramatically improve the battery, they can gain a very important competitive advantage, whether it's allowing the battery to handle faster charging, whether it's decreasing the size of the battery for the same uh, amount of charge, whether it's allowing for longer range of the vehicle. Batteries are a crucial component in electric vehicles. Because of this, my understanding is that most of the big automakers do have a substantial amount of investment in electric vehicle batteries. Many of the original electric vehicle batteries were simply laptop batteries strapped together. And now they've moved far beyond that to batteries that are custom made for the demands of of driving rather than the demands of powering a laptop. (laughs) And they're different. So there's a lot of room for additional innovation. And as I said, most of the automakers are making great strides, often in partnership with Panasonic or LG or one of the others, but sometimes on their own thinking about solid-state battery chemistries, thinking about lithium iron phosphate chemistries that use fewer critical metals and might be cheaper in the long run. There are a variety of, of pathways that are being taken that the companies are exploring. Um, and I think they're very aware that if they participate, perhaps with a partner, in uh, an innovation that really changes the way that we think about batteries, it will put them at a, a massive competitive advantage. At the same time, If a company just is willing to let LG or Panasonic and others do all of the battery manufacturing and all of the battery R&D, they do risk becoming a low-margin producer of a commodified good with all the value being in the battery. I have one more voice, this one optimistic. Sebastian Koper is a Torontonian living in Chicago and working for a German-headquartered management consulting firm, Rollenberger that advises governments and corporations. And he said, one of the biggest underlooked parts of this is that we're building a whole new industry. Multiple parts of the same supply chain need to come up at the same time. And the private market probably isn't going to do it by itself. He was basically agnostic on what policy governments should take to ensure this happens. But he did seem to think that governments are going to need to support it. There's just a lot of things which will have to come together. 
you know, we're not talking about a, a, an easy transition here to, to go from ICE to, to EVs, you know, from a pure sort of a product perspective, you know, you're just changing the powertrain. You're going from something that that's been around for a hundred plus years, which is the, you know, combustion engine into going into something uh, which does the same thing. It provides, you know, power to, uh, to move a vehicle, but does so in, in, in a very different way and requires a completely different fuel. But behind that, you have to have a whole industry there. And we're talking everything from the supplier ecosystem uh, and doing things like cell manufacturing and building the, the cathode materials and mining the materials like nickel and cobalt and manganese that go into these batteries. So you have to have you know, the whole charging ecosystem. The, the point is that you have to have a lot of these different actors kind of working somewhat in unison and being able to support you know, this, this whole new industry to be set up here. And, and the last major active course is, is on government and what kind of policies we're going to see, uh, let's say financial support. And so you know, a lot of these players are kind of also waiting and seeing sort of what happens. And so I think if all of these things were to align, I think Canada is in a unique position to really be able to see this as a springboard and to actually accelerate its participation overall in the automotive industry. I think this could be uh, an interesting opportunity for sure in the long term for, for Canada. Again, I took his point to be that there's basically no way any EV supply chain grows without government support. We've already seen the automakers getting money, and we have part of a battery supply chain. We have one battery cell manufacturer. We have battery assembly plants. We have a cathode factory. But we still need sources of minerals for these battery plants. And there's some other chemical refining stages that don't currently exist in North America or in Canada. So I won't be surprised if we see investment from the government to fill out the supply chain. But for now, we've got all the automakers. And that's our episode this week about cars and what's changing in the auto sector. A huge thank you to my guests, Francois-Philippe Champagne, the Federal Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, to Kenneth Gillingham, a professor of economics at Yale University, and Sebastian Koper, a principal at the management consulting firm Roland Berger. Thank you so much for listening to Down to Business and supporting this show. The original music was composed and performed by Bryce Hall, who also executive produced the show, to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid, who provided web support and editing, and all the editors at the Financial Post. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.